to Psalm 88, as we continue working our way through some of these hymns, songs, and prayers of the people of God. Before we read the text, I want to say a few words about it. Uh, in some measure, to prepare ourselves for the reading of it. This is likely the saddest of the Psalms in the whole book. It ends as it begins in grief and despair. The last word of it is darkness. Some people have tried to say that suffering is an illusion and pain is unreal. I, I wonder what those people say when in the middle of the night they get up and they, they bust their shin on the bed frame. I, I wonder what those folks would say at the, at the funeral of a friend, what they would say about suffering being an illusion. Some people have tried to say, however, that, that suffering, uh, you know, it exists. And really the problem is you don't believe. Uh, if... Pain is your own fault, basically. And if you had believed it wouldn't have happened, or if you would believe now, it would go away. It's interesting that that didn't work for Jesus. Some people, very well-meaning, and yet misleading evangelical Christians will say things like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And make it sound like, once you're a Christian, you'll only sing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. And I'm so happy, so very happy. Now, is there joy and is there happiness in following Jesus? Absolutely. But, but is there room in our theology to sing the blues? Like Psalm 88, a psalm of a believer named Haman, who was, <laughs> be interesting to know this, the father of 17 children, 14 boys and 3 girls, according to the Chronicler, if, if it's the same Haman of First Chronicles, who was a choir director appointed by David to lead the congregation of Israel in praise and worship. He was both a singer and a musician. And I refuse to indulge, indulge the speculation that he was prone to depression because he had so many kids. Or because he had a musician's temperament. We don't know that from this text. What we know is that he's a believer and he's in a deep pit for a long time. Service doesn't immunize us from suffering. Christians can suffer in the pit of despair. Even after becoming Christians, he experienced what, what the hymn writer William Cooper Wrote, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. 
the bud often has a very bitter taste and no more than for psalm the psalmist Haman from Psalm 88. So we want to read this passage together and consider it. And bef- one more thing before we read it, just to outline it for you, I think, as we read along. I think you'll see in verses 1 and 2 the appeal that he makes to God. In verses 3 through 9, the anguish that he feels. In verses 10 through 12, the argument that he uses to get help. And verses 13 through 18, the answer that he receives. Let me invite you now to hear the word of God. Psalm 88. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalalanoth, a masculine of Haman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from the land. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders? For the dead, do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would, even as you teach us your word, that you would give us hearts to cry out to you in our hours of desperation. Encourage us by this word and show us Jesus through it, that we might know there is one who stands between us and you to bring us to you. For we ask in his name we pray. Amen.
And so I want you to think about the appeal that he makes and the anguish that he feels and the argument he brings before God to get relief and the answer that he receives. Notice in the first place the appeal that he makes, verses 1 and 2. He's praying, but he doesn't feel heard. Oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out night and day, day and night. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to hear my prayer. You see, he doesn't... He doesn't feel that God is hearing him. He's not sure that God is hearing him. Verse 9, the end of it says, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. There are seasons in the life of believers, strong believers, in which they feel like their prayers aren't being heard. And thankfully, this psalm is a reminder to us of that. If, if it weren't the case that there really would be Uh, then there really would be cause for despair. I mean, if you were going through a season where a prayer of yours was, had not been heard, you thought, you thought that the Bible teaches that true believers never go through seasons like that, what would you begin to think about yourself? You'd begin to say, well, I must not be a true believer. I must not be right with God. He must have no care for me. But this is a godly believer, a strong believer, and right now he doesn't feel that God is hearing him. And this, this, more than anything else, is the cause of his pain. Verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And so uh, he, he, perhaps like you, had the experience where he felt like his prayers were hitting a brick wall above his head and bouncing right down back on his shoulders. And, and, and ultimately, I want to say, if we, if we take a step back away from this prayer, there is a bigger picture that allows us to understand his experience. But in the midst of it, when you're going through it, praying and praying and feeling unheard, that's a heavy burden. And it's helpful to know that that's the experience of genuine believers. Some, some who have prayed for years and years for some loved one Longing for their conversion and asking for it, but it hasn't happened yet. Or praying for deliverance amidst a doctor's difficult prognosis. And you you ask, Lord, give me relief. Give me deliverance. I, I want a miracle here. And yet you haven't experienced that. This psalmist gets you. He's feeling that way. And I say just under this first point, that therefore we need to be sensitive and supportive of brothers and sisters who are in this kind of a circumstance, feeling like God isn't listening at all to them. We need to be sensitive. But the second thing I want you to to see is the anguish that he feels here. If if, uh, Haman shares anything with other psalmists, it's brutal honesty. Verses 3 through 9, I think is, is a good model for all who lead in worship, all who write songs, sing songs, lead people in praise, preach sermons, Pray in front of people. For, for we do not have to fake joy in front of the people of God when we don't have it ourselves. We don't have to pretend everything is okay when it's not. And the psalmist here, you know, in verse 3, he says, notice what he says. He says, I, I feel like I'm dying. My, my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. The Old Testament word for the, the shadowy world of the dead. 
Doesn't necessarily mean heaven or hell, but the realm of the dead. He feels weak. Verse 4, I'm a man who has no strength. He feels unsupported. Verse 5, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they're cut off from your hand. He feels absolutely unsupported by God in the midst of it. He feels himself far and God far from him. And that may be the worst loneliness that there is. Isn't, Isn't it right? That that sense of loneliness can make you feel lonely even in a crowd. It can make you feel lonely in your marriage, in your family, in the congregation of the people of God. A multitude of people people can surround you, even people who love you, and yet you feel yourself utterly alone. That's his experience here. And how did he get this way? Some tragic accident of history, some terrible sin on his part. Nope. Verses 6 through 9. Notice what he says. How did I get here? You, speaking to God, you put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Verse 7. Why am I suffocating under this burden? Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. I feel trapped in the surf, drowning, he says. And you just keep sending wave after wave over the top of me. Why am I all alone in this, verse 8? Well, you, God, have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a whore to them. Why can't I get past this? I'm shut in, the end of verse 8, so that I cannot escape. And and there's no hope of a changed circumstance here. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you, day and night, and there's been no relief. It just goes on and on. This psalmist is in a terrible world of hurt before a good God. And he knows nothing of the theology of Rabbi Harold Kushner. If you know Rabbi Harold Kushner and his book, Why Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? This psalmist hasn't been there. You know, if Rabbi Kushner were here, he would say, look, sometimes bad things happen to good people. You're a good person. God has nothing to do with this. He'd love to help you out, but he can't. Because he's not in control of everything. And if you just come to terms with the realization that God's not in control of everything, well then, he's not in control of your circumstances. And then, you'll get some relief. My friends, there is no relief in that. And it's not what the psalmist says. The psalmist knows that God is sovereign. He knows it like Job knew it. Consider the story of Job. Never once in the story of Job's suffering does he say, God isn't in control. Never once does he find comfort in the thought that God just isn't involved in my suffering. Job knows God is in control even when Satan kills all of his children by God's permission. Job chapter 1. Job confesses at the end of it, 1 verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then God permits Satan to afflict Job himself with terrible sores on his body. And his wife challenges him to curse God and die. And he replies, chapter 2, verse 10, 
Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not also receive evil? Disaster? Hardship? Is God, in other words, is God only the God of good things? And there's some other shadowy deity out there in charge of the bad stuff? No, no, no. And the Bible says in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Like Job, the psalmist knows his God is in control and that he has the freedom to cry out with his complaint to the Lord. We need to know this, Christians, that that not even a hair on our head falls to the ground, but by the will of our Father in heaven. That as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, all the days ordained for me were written in God's book before one of them came to be. To whom else will we go for help? To whom else can we go for help? I want to ask you, where do you take your despair? Where do you go when you're depressed? Maybe we're tempted by other comforts. There are a variety of things saying, I can comfort you. I I, I just simply want to caution all of us. Do we drown our sorrows in alcohol? That's dangerous for a variety of reasons. One of which is this, alcohol is a depressant. And we need to be very careful that we're not deepening our depression. But others will turn and rely on medication. And physicians will attempt to medicate depression. And to medicate it away with something that will always make you happy. Now any good physician would caution you and warn you and be very cautious and careful about it. And we need to be. Yes, in dire circumstances, Proverbs 31 verses 6 and 7 says... And commends when it says, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. But I'm just urging caution because the unintended consequence of habitual use can be a numbing of our ability to think clearly, to feel sadness And to grieve appropriately, even evil, even when it's appropriate to grieve and to feel sad. There are times we ought to feel sad over sin, over suffering, just urging caution. Or do we deal with our anguish by letting loose and complaining to others? And we need to be careful. Be careful about the affirmation of others that strengthens in us a bitter spirit. It's one thing to be honest with God, and it's appropriate to be. And honest with trusted friends, and it's appropriate to be. But it's another thing to seek affirmation that your resentment of God is appropriate. And we need to be cautious. Or perhaps we simply never acknowledge our burdens at all. We embrace stoicism. It's all good. And I'll put on a happy face and keep up my reputation as a good Christian. Listen, the psalmist shows us the way of faith here. He takes his trouble to the Lord who afflicts us. And we have freedom to sorrow before the Lord. That's faith. Verse 14, anguish here. Anguish here is a sign of true faith. 
Why do you hide your face from me? Wrestling with God about your troubles is an act of faith here. Arguing with God about why he ought to take away your trouble is an activity of faith. And I want you to see the argument that he makes in the third thing, verses 10 through 12. Notice this argument. His argument basically is this. I want to praise you, Lord, but I can't do that if I'm dead. If I'm six feet under, it's just not going to happen. I can't praise you in the grave. I can't tell people about your faithfulness or your mercy or your steadfast loving kindness if I'm dead. So please answer me and rescue me. That's his argument. I'll walk you through it in just a second. But it's, it's ironic, isn't it? That God will do and has done precisely what the psalmist thinks he can't do. Look at the argument in verse 10. Lord, he says, will you perform wonders for the dead? And as a matter of fact, yes, I will, says the Lord. Will the departed spirits rise up to praise you? Well, as a matter of fact, dear Old Testament saint, they will. Will your steadfast love be declared in the grave, he says. Well, yes, it will in my son's grave. Will your faithfulness be shown in Abaddon in in the abyss and the depths of hell. Well, yes, it will. My son will endure its sufferings for you, God says. Are are your wonders known in the darkness, says the psalmist? Oh, yes, they are. In the deepest darkness, Jesus hung on a cross that you might never taste infinite and everlasting darkness. Will your righteousness be known in... In the land of forgetfulness. Yes, it will is what God is saying. You see, as my old pastor said it, the very finality with which the psalmist views death serves to beautifully highlight the Christian hope of the resurrection. See, ultimately our hope is not that our, our soul simply disappears from our body and our body goes to this grave, but that... One day our body is going to be raised from the dead, reunited to our soul, and we will forever live in the bliss of the presence of God and joyfully praise him for his salvation. But the lack of clarity about that for the Old Testament believer and the lack of a full understanding of that for the Old Testament believer actually highlights the truth and hope for us who live on this side of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There were lots of things in the Old Testament that pointed to, that foreshadowed, that promised the resurrection. Don't misunderstand me. But looking back on the resurrection of Christ is a world of difference in our clarity about what those promises mean and our confidence of them. I mentioned William Cooper's hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, earlier. Cooper lived an extremely difficult life. His mother died. I want to tell you a little bit about his life. His mother died just days after he was born. And the maids told him that she had gone away on a journey and that she was coming back. And he, looking back on that, says, I knew That wasn't true. I understood what death was, but they so persisted in saying it that I came to believe that I had misunderstood what death was and to hope that I would see her again. Can you imagine 
for a child, how that would have increased the anguish. And then his father, who evidently had difficulty handling the family after the death of his wife, shipped him off to boarding school at the age of six, at which he says he was horribly abused by older children. And then in his late teenage years, he falls in love with a woman whose father permitted them to see each other. But then at the time of the engagement, forbade the marriage. And they they went on to pine for one another to the end of their days, but never married. And then, just as he's he's, uh, apprenticed into uh, work, he suffers severe anxiety about it. He doesn't like it, doesn't want to do what his... His dad and others have put before him. He says, day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror and rising up in despair. And now here, here he is in his, in his early 20s, and he suffers such severe mental distress that coincided with the death of some other family members as well, that in anguish he attempts suicide on at least three occasions. Some biographers will say four or five occasions. He was sent to live in a place called St. Albans, which was uh, a place for um, the mentally and the psychologically ill to live. And he was treated with great compassion by a physician there, a godly Christian man who loved him. And he had occasion to read the Bible while he was there and, and to hear the gospel. And one day he caught a glimpse in a Bible of Romans chapter 3, verse 25. And he said immediately, I received strength to believe. And the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. And I saw the sufficiency of the atonement that he had made. My pardon sealed in his blood. And all the fullness and completeness of his justification. And in a moment I believed and I received the gospel. And slowly he improved. And his mental health improved in in such a way that he went to live with a pastor and his family where they warmly loved him. And that is where he met the now famous John Newton, the the pastor, hymn writer, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. And they became very intimate and good friends. They began to write together. They wrote hymns together. They've published even today. Uh, You can get in-print copies of the hymns that they wrote. But the depression came on again, and again it was relentless. In late 1772, he wrote his final hymn for the Christian church, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And within about a month, a cloud of darkness envelops him, and he goes to bed one night, and he has a terrible dream, the contents of which... He does not reveal, but in that dream, he came to believe that he was utterly forsaken by God with all hope of salvation gone forever. He never went on to deny the faith. (laughs) He believed the gospel was true, that all the promises of God were true, that he had been saved, but that he alone was the one exception among all God's people. And that he was doomed to the lowest place in hell, even below Judas. He went truly crazy. 
not just spiritually in his thinking. Uh, he had wild thoughts of meat being offered to him by people who loved him, not being butcher's meat, but human flesh. I mean, he really went, at least for a time, mentally insane at some level. It's hard to imagine how things could have been worse in his life. And my point is this, and we'll come back to him in a second, but my point is this. Even genuine believers suffer severe bouts of depression and have great difficulty seeing any hope like this psalmist. And yet that underscores what a remarkable hope we do have in the promise of the resurrection where faith shall be made sight, where the diseased will be made whole, and where the depressed are freed to experience light and joy. It underscores that hope that we have. But finally, I want you to see this. The answer he receives in verses 13 through 18. Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful salts destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. What answer did he receive? At the end of this psalm, he is still waiting on God's help. And the answer still seems to be more of the same. He's still in it. And that is a reminder to us, friends, there are not always happy endings in a fallen world. This world is broken. And we are broken. And there is such a thing as unrelieved suffering in this life. It's tempting to think, That God owes us a happy and easy life. But he doesn't owe us that. It is a blessing. It is an undeserved gift. But it can also be a curse. I don't know that you have to spell it out. The withholding of an easy life is no proof of God's displeasure. Just as a happy life. Or the possession of riches is no proof of God's approval. They... Happiness and wealth can be a blessing, but not invariably. And the absence of them can be a blessing, but not invariably. We know that this world is not how things are supposed to work. And this world is not all that there is. William Cooper died... 27 years later, and when he did, his friend John Newton remarked, I was glad when I heard of it. He suffered much here for 27 years, but eternity is long enough to make amends for all. Newton preached at his sermon, at his funeral. I believe that Cooper, in that split second as his soul left this world of misery and met its Savior, that he proved true what he had written elsewhere in a different hymn, the saints should never be dismayed nor sink in hopeless fear. That's ironic, isn't it? For when they least expect his aid, the Savior will appear.
That's the promise of eternal life. That's the answer for all who believe in Jesus. You receive the promise that in that split second, faith will be made sight. The sick will be made well. And the depressed will be made light in God's light. There is hope in this psalm for every sorrowing believer. And he was not without that hope. Verses 1 and 2 tells you he prayed to the God who was the Lord God of Israel, the God of salvation, the God who kept covenant relationship and bound himself eternally and everlastingly in steadfast love to his people. That's who he appeals to here. He knew that God, as he says, was the God of my salvation. Just as we know that Jesus, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through Christ, and that he has gone on to prepare a better place for us. There is hope in this psalm, and there's hope also in this way. At the end of it, he's still talking to God. He's still praying, and God is sustaining him in his weakness, even through prayer. And isn't that at least part of the message of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, when the Bible promises you, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would draw near and that your power would be made perfect in our weakness that Christ would sustain his people and that you as our good shepherd would lead us and guide us all the days of life and that goodness and mercy would pursue us all the days of our life that we might dwell in the house of the Lord forever for we ask it in Jesus name Amen